The Mishkan, or by extension, the base Hamikdash, represents the entire experience of Judaism, how we connect with Hashem and how we bring Hashem into our lives, as the Torah famously tells us. In this week's parasha, we discover that there are two critical elements to the Mishkan. There is the Mishkan itself, and then the Oroin, which is, according to the Ramban, at least, the epicenter of the Mishkan. And those two elements, the Mishkan itself, or as the Rambam calls it, a place to serve Hashem through Karbonos, and the Oroin represent the two elements of Torah and Mitzvahs, and how that makes each of us into a home for Hashem, how those two sides of our avoida are critical to our connection. Al-Aposuk, commenting on the Pasuk that says, Vayas that Betzalel made the Aaron. He said, a midrash, there's a very intriguing Midrash that says, When Hashem told Moshe to make a Mishkan, So he came and instructed Betzalel, as Hashem had told him. Amaloi, Sabbatzalel says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Mahu Hamishkan Hazeh. What is the Mishkan? What is, what's it all about? Amaloi, Moshe tells him, It's a place where the Eibishter will manifest his presence. And, at least, and it's also a place where Hashem will teach the Jewish people Torah. So Betzalel says to Moshe, So where's this Torah going to go? This Torah that we're supposed to teach. Once we make the structure of the Mishkan, then we'll make an Aaron. And inside that, we'll put the Luchos and we'll put the, so to speak, the core of the whole Torah. It's not appropriate, it's not respectful to the Torah to do it in that fashion. First, let's make the Aaron to house the Torah. And then the building to house the Aaron. Because of this story, says the Medrash, that's why the Mishkan is attributed to Betzal, because of this foresight that he had, or at least the Oren is attributed. Shenemra, as the Pasuk says, it says specifically that made the Oren. In other words, a Mashma Medrash say, would it appear from the way the Medrash is saying it, that there are two separate things of here. There's the Mishkan, which is where you manifest Hashem's presence, and independently of that, there's the Oren, which is the place of Torah. And the same theme emerges from a different medrash. Where the Ebeshter says to the Yidden, after they completed the Mishkan, he says, You've made a Mishkan which is a home for me. Now make an accommodation for my Torah that it could also be in proximity to me. So again, seems to make a distinction between the Mishkan on the whole and specifically the Torah. So It's a little difficult to understand this distinction. And of course, we understand that the place that represents Torah and that housed the Luchos was the Aaron. But isn't the Aaron also the main place of the manifestation of the divine Shechina and the messaging to Moshe Rabbein who came via the Aaron? So why are we making this distinction? Look at how the Ramban says According to the Ramban, the entire purpose of a Mishkan is to have a place of divine presence, which is the Aaron. So why are we separating them? So how can we make this split and say that the overall Mishkan and later the Beis HaMikdash is where the divine presence will be manifest? And then we make a distinction that the Aaron is the place of Torah. Why? Why that distinction? So the humans there, in order to understand why we're making these two areas of focus, the Mishkan for Hashra, Ashkina, 
and Torah. So to get that, let's first understand the message of the Mishkan. The Pasuk instructs us to make a place to house the Divine Presence first in the Mishkan, later in the Beis HaMikdash. That's all Bakosev in the Pasuk which says, Famously, make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell within you. As we well know, the Lashen is not as you would have expected. It doesn't say that Hashem will dwell in it, the space, but rather amongst you, the people. That illustrates to us that there's something additional besides just the what you would expect, that this is a place of divine presence. And that is that not only is the building a place of divine presence, but every one of us is a place of divine presence. So we have to understand this principle of what does it mean that Hashem is within every single one of us. In order to do that, we're going to look at the end of the Gemara Chagiga. This is in fact a Siyam on Gemara Chagiga. And we're going to look at two different opinions about exactly how it is or what's special about the Jewish people to the extent that we're actually immune from Gehenna. So the end of Masech the Chagiga, the Gemara tells us, so you first have the opinion of Rabbi Abohu that Tamidei Chachamim are immune to the fires of Gehenim. How do you know? Kavachomim is salamandra. It's a kavachomim from this creature, the salamander, which apparently is a creature that is born out of fire. Look at the salamander. It is born out of fire. If a person takes its blood and coats their skin with his blood, it's fire retardant. You'll be protected from fire. So therefore, how much more so? How much more so? We're not the product of fire. Their entire being is fire. As the Pasuk says, Hashem says, my words are like fire, so they're filled with Hashem's words. So how much more so must they be protected from fire? This little creature could have protection from fire. They certainly could have protection from the fires of Gehenim. So that's Rabbi Abohu, Tamid HaChachamim are protected. Amir Shlokish, Rishlokish takes it far further. He says, in Orusha Gehenim, Shalatis Bepoisha Yisrael. He says, the fires of Gehenim cannot harm even the sinners of Israel. How does he know? So we develop a Kalvachoymer from the nature of the internal the golden altar that was used inside the base of Mikdash that was coated in gold. If you have this wooden structure called the Mizbech Azov with a thinnest coating of gold on the outside, the thickness of a small coin, and yet for years and years and years of fire burning on it, it never burns. So how much more so? If that's the way it is, then the sinners of Israel who are filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate is filled with seeds, as the Pasuk says in Pasuk says, like the pomegranate is your, your, kind of your forehead, which we interpret to mean for the word those who are empty, they look like they're empty, but they're actually filled with mitzvahs. How much more so will they be protected? They not just they also have their coatings, so to speak, and not only a coating, but they're filled with mitzvahs. They'll certainly be um, safe from the fires of Gehenim. So it would seem that the link between these two statements, Rabbi Abo and Reish Lakish, is because because what the what the Gemara was just talking about before that was the nature of the coatings of the two Mizbachis and whether they um, conduct impurity or not. So after you discuss that, 
So then it fits to talk about what Reish Lakish says in Orsha Gehenim Shletis Bifoish Yisrael, where he understands that we, even the sinners of Israel, have protection from the fires of Gehenim, learned from the gold of the Mizbech Hazov, which we just spoke about in the Gemara. Where the, 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 point, the part that he's emphasizing is that it was just a coating of gold that made this into the golden Mizbech. Because we were headed to that statement by Reish Lakish, the Gemara first preceded it with a statement of Rabbi Abo quoting Rabbi Elazar that Tamid Chachamim are immune to the fires of Gehenim. Okay, so that would seem to be the link, but when you examine it, it's, it's actually not a really good explanation. Aleph, question number one. Im Kane, let's say that that is, in fact, because we were talking about the, the Mizbachos and we we're talking about the fact that they're coated, therefore we were going to the conversation of Reish Lakish about the coating of the Mizbach Azav representing the protection of every single Jew. So, then the logical step would have been you've spoken about the Mizbachos. Now, quote Reish Lakish, who also speaks about the Mizbach Azav. And then you can get into the conversation that there's another opinion that it's specifically referring to the Tamit Chachamim and has nothing to do with the Mizbach. Which doesn't really have the same content as what the Gemara was talking about. So, the order in which the Gemara presents the two opinions doesn't seem to be logical. Number two, here we're in Masechta Chagiga, suddenly talking about Gehenna and how it does or doesn't affect Jewish people. The truth is, this is a subject that is much more thoroughly discussed in the Gemara Erevin. And even there, they quote Reish Lakish with exactly what he's saying over here, that even the sinner is filled with mitzvahs like the pomegranate, and therefore we're protected from Gehenna. So over there in Erevin, where it spoke about this, that's where they should have quoted Rabbi Loza, uh, brought by Rabbi Abahu, that also Tamid HaChachomim are protected from Gehenna. Because that's actually where the, that's the focus of that particular section of the Gemara. So you should discuss all the angles. Whereas over here, we're just quoting it as an aside because we were talking about the Mizbachos. So we're also talking about Reish Lakish's comment about the Mizbach. But Rabbi Loza's comment really seems out of place over here. And second of all, Bez, Masechta Erevin, Kedemus, the Masechta Chagiga. Erevin is an earlier Masechta than Chagiga. Usually you'd expect that you do a, th- a thorough treatment of a topic the first time you encounter it rather than waiting for later. And then the third thing we have to understand is Gimel, but Lakish, let's look at what Reish Lakish actually says. He says, we are protected, even the Poshay soul from Gehenim, because look, if, it, if the Mizbech Hazav is protected, how much more so? And his whole argument is because it's such a thin coat, and yet the fire doesn't penetrate through to the wood. If you read the piece of the Gemara that led up to this, it seems that what Reish Lakish says over here is the exact opposite of what the Gemara there said. Because the whole point of the Gemara and the conclusion of the Gemara over there was that... um, it was a whole conversation about whether or not the Mizbech could become Tomei. And the reason you think it could become Tomei is because it has a metallic outside. And the Rabbanon had to explain, we ignore the fact that it's a metal outside because that veneer is bottle, it loses its status in the bigger picture of the Mizbech. In other words, 
that seemed to diminish the value of the coating and speak about the value of the Mizbeach. Whereas, Whereas Reish Lakish is saying the exact opposite. Look how strong the veneer is. So how does that fit in the Gemara? The Gemara's entire thrust was to say, look how irrelevant the coating is because it's the Mizbeach that counts. comes along Reish Lakish and says, look how powerful the coating is because it protects the Mizbeach. To the point that he says, look, this little thin coating of gold protected the entire Mizbeach, to keep it safe from fire. There are a whole string of other questions that we have to ask about how these two opinions are shared in the Gemara. We'll look at some of them. Aleph. Now, the, the logic of how we prove that the sinners of Israel are protected from Gehenna because we learn it out of the gold of the Mizbech Azov, it's a very strong and, and probably even stronger argument than the one for the Tamad Chachamim. Because we say, look, he has gold. The gold actually protects from fire. So you could say, think about it. If this is gold is enough to protect the sinners of Israel, for sure it protects the Tamid HaChachamim. Because they have, so to speak, more of the gold. Maybe they did certain things that they shouldn't have. Which may be earn them the uh, consequences of Gehenna. Don't worry about that. They're protected by the Torah. So it doesn't really actually make sense. Who needs to discuss a special proof of the fact that the Tamid HaChachamim, and you surely thought of this as soon as you saw these two uh, opinions. If you've already told me that the sinners of Israel are protected from Gehenna, why do you now have to prove to me that the, that the sages are protected? It should be self-evident. It's a logical conclusion. If the sinners of Israel are protected from Gehenna, how much more so the Tamidei Chachamim? Also, once the Gemara already brought a very specific explanation according to Rabbi Elozer, why Tamidei Chachamim, who are like the so-called Salamander, are protected from Gehenna, so let's say you had to, for whatever reason, prove independently that the Tamidei Chachamim are immune to the fires of Gehenna. But why do you need a new Kalvachomer from the Salamander? Use the Kalvachomer of the Mizbeach. If, even if, for whatever reason, you have to prove it independently and you can't just extrapolate that Poisha Yisrael are protected from Gehenna. Okay, but use the same logic. The gold of the Mizbeach protects Especially when you consider the Yosi Yuksha, it really makes no sense. Salamandra who sheretz tomei oyal kol ponim chaya, the two versions of exactly what creature the salamander is. So either it's a sheretz, which is a fundamentally impure creature, or at the very least it's a chaya, but still a non kosher creature. Mim Kane. Why would we want to work out a concept, an appreciation for Tamidah Chachamim? Based on a non-kosher animal and possibly even an impure animal. When your alternative is, you could have learned it out of one of the holy items of the Beis HaMikdash. It doesn't make any sense. Another question doesn't make sense. Whichever way you look at it, somehow not only are the sinners in Gehenna, but the Torah scholars also in Gehenna. 
But somehow they're protected. So they are in Gehenna, but they're protected from the fires of Gehenna. One group is protected because of their Torah study. And the other group is protected because in spite of their rebellion, they are filled with mitzvahs. So why do we have such clearly different labels for them? They're two groups that are in Gehenna. They're two groups that are immune to get to the fire of Gehenna. Yeah, so each one for a different reason. But such dramatically different names. Torah scholars, sinners of Israel. In other words, there's quite a lot about this sugya that doesn't really seem to make sense. You can sail through it and say, oh, what a beautiful message. You can share it at your Shabbos table. It's so beautiful that every single Jew has this aura of holiness that protects them. But what are we really trying to say over here? So Rabbi Bechol what we're really trying to say is, there are two paths of connection between a Jewish person and Hashem. One is the path specifically invested in Torah learning, and the other is specifically through observance of mitzvahs. But there is a distinction between the two paths. Obviously, you have to have both in your life, but as a primary path, depending which one you follow, there's a big difference. When a person learns Torah and therefore comes to use human intellect to appreciate and ingest divine wisdom, then that Jewish person becomes absolutely one with the Torah, as the Alter Rebbe famously tells us in Tanya, with an unprecedented kind of unity that doesn't exist in any other sphere. That you become absolutely one with the Torah that you're learning, which means that your reality, your definition of self, becomes Torah. That's what you are. That's who you are. Whereas when a person does mitzvahs, so we know that at the time that you do the mitzvah, at that moment you are an, a vehicle for Hashem's will. At that moment in time, you are a tool that Hashem uses in order to fulfill His intentions. But there's no way that suggests that the person becomes bound up and one with the mitzvah in the same way as you do with the Torah. So now that we know that distinction, it's a very important distinction, we can come back to the two different views, Rabbi Elazar and Rish Lakish. Rabbi Elazar wants to describe what is unique about those people whose primary connection to Judaism is through Torah. What's he say about them? So Rabbi Elazar says, Rabbi Elazar says, you know what happens to a Talmud Chacham when he learns Torah? His whole being becomes Torah. His whole being becomes fire. When we say fire over here, we mean Dvorai Torah. The whole person, a Talmud Chacham, he is Torah. It's not that he learns Torah or he knows Torah. He is Torah. So that's Rabbi Elazar's focus. The value of Torah learning, the approach of Avoid Hashem through Torah. Whereas Reish Lakish talks about the greatness of mitzvah observance, even when it's done by a sinner. Where even the sinner is filled with mitzvahs like the seeds. 
שאף על פי שלו דעה מצוות אין נעשה ייחוד בין המצווה ליהודים, אלו סזרי שלוקש, the truth is, that there isn't that same unity between the מצווה and the person doing the מצווה as there is in Torah. מקומוקים הרי מעל כל פנים כאלה מלאים מצווה. At least the person becomes a suitable container, a conduit, a vehicle for מצווה, to the point that he's filled with מצווה. And that has such power that it protects that person from Gehenim. And that's also why he specifically associates it with a pomegranate, because look at a pomegranate. The pomegranate is filled with seeds. But the shell and the seeds are actually quite distinct and separate. Which is illustrative of the sinners. They are people who do many, many, many mitzvahs. They're filled with mitzvahs. But they don't become the mitzvahs. You can still distinguish between the container, the human, and the mitzvahs inside. And they're just filled with mitzvahs. Ah, now we see that there's a huge advantage to Tamidei Chachamim because they become the Torah itself. Still, you can't naturally say, okay, Tamidei Chachamim are far more advanced than Poishe Yisrael because Tamidei Chachamim are one with the Torah, whereas Poishe Yisrael are only filled with Torah, uh, with mitzvahs on the inside, but it doesn't become who they are. So naturally, you, you should think logically, if the Poishe Yisrael are protected from Genem, how much more so Tamidei Chachamim? It's not so simple. Because when a Talmud Chacham makes a mistake, it's a far more serious offense than if a lowly Jew had done it. As the expression goes, that even a mistake for a Talmud Chacham has the weight of a deliberate action by any other person. So you can't just derive from the story of the Poish Yisrael to the Talmud Chacham because they're judged at a higher level and their things that they do wrong carry much more gravitas. And obviously we can't learn that because the Tamid Chachamim are protected from Gehenim, the same should apply to Poish Yisrael, that obviously we know you can't learn because the Tamid Chachamim are absolutely one with the Torah, which you don't find to be the case of Poish Yisrael. So we understand why you have to have two separate conversations, one with Rabbi Eloza, one with Reish Lokish, each giving a different motivation and explanation to how it is that their specific group that they're describing is protected from Gehenim. And with that, we get a very important insight into the difference of how Torah changes a person versus how mitzvahs affect a person. And with that, we can address the irony of the story that the lesser people are compared to the holier item, the golden Mizbech, and the greater people, the Tamid HaChachomim, are compared to the non-kosher item, the Salamander. Why did we do that? Because salamander, he told us, however it works zoologically, the salamander is a product of fire. That relates very well to the nature of how we're describing a Talmud Chacham, that they are fire. That is their reality. Their entire being is Torah. And, and in using this Kabbalah to say he has a creature in the physical natural world that emerges out of fire and is therefore immune to fire, how much more so in the spiritual world of being an entity, a human, who is infused with fire to the point that that becomes who they are, is certainly immune to some kind of negative spiritual fire. 
of a Kalvachoymer Zebor Rabbi Loza Gamelevoeren using this particular kind of Kalvachoymer Rabbi Loza also clarifies for us Here you are talking about Tamidei Chachamim who are absolutely fire in other words they are completely one with the Torah How then is it imaginable that they should sin? Why are they in Gehenna? It doesn't make any sense that a Tamid Chacham should land up in Gehenna and on the other hand, if they are people who are susceptible to doing something wrong, which is why we're addressing what we do with them when they're in Gehenna, if they are susceptible, how are they immune to the fire? And they remain in that status of being, so to speak, completely fire. From that, we bring the example of the salamander, which is a product of fire. What does that mean? What's, what's this got to do with it? So I'm a big Gemara. The Gemara tells us that when it comes to the castering of vessels, even though we know that you can take items to a mikveh as part of the purification process, Gemara tells us that the primary way to immerse an object is actually in fire. Which means, means that by rights, fire purifies things even better than water does. So if this is true, that fire has the capacity to neutralize impurity, in other words, it removes the impurity, then logic will tell you if fire neutralizes, removes, sterilizes impurity, surely it cannot produce impurity. Nevertheless, you see that there's this creature which is not kosher, or according to some versions of Sheretz, it's an impure creature. She is Sheretz Tomeo called Ponim Chaya, and where does it come from? It comes from fire. And ironically, so it's fire which should get rid of impurity that produces an impure creature. And yet on the other hand, if you use the blood of the salamander as, as some kind of a, a, a bomb, it will protect you from fire. Now if that's the story of this creature, that it was produced out of fire, which is a purifier, and yet became impure, and yet you could use it as protection against fire. How much more so Talmud Chacham, whose entire reality is fire, in other words, the entire reality is holiness. It's possible that a Talmud Chacham might actually slip spiritually. At some point, it can happen. Why? Because the reality is that Talmud Chacham also lives in a physical body and also lives in a physical world. And is also dominated by people who have the wrong ideas and persuasions. Despite all of that, no matter what happens, they remain absolutely holy. To the point that they are protected from the fires of Gehenna. That's the message. So if fire produces a sheret, you could still protect that person from fire. Whereas when Reish Lakish needs to illustrate to us that the sinners of Israel are still filled with mitzvahs like the pomegranate, for that he uses the example of the mitzvah which is coated in gold. To illustrate that the mitzvahs don't transform the whole of us, they coat us in holiness. Which means that the person is now covered and held by a mitzvah which protects them. But as we already said before, it's not that you become absolutely one with the mitzvah. 
And that will also explain why we use such dramatically different titles for the two groups. The first group is called Tamidei Chachamim, and the second group are called the Great Sinners of Israel. If I'm talking about people who be'emes, the truth is that they are absolutely holy. They are completely enveloped in holiness. So even if they land up in Gehenna, you can't use words like sinner. You can't. They're absolutely holy. You're actually not allowed to do anything which might degrade them in any way because because as we know, if a person degrades a Talmud Chacham, they effectively are degrading the Torah. Because you actually cannot distinguish between the Learner, the, the, not just somebody who goes to a shir once a week, but a Talmud Chacham who is immersed in Torah learning, you can't distinguish between them and the Torah that they learn. As the, the Gemara tells us, that if a Talmud Chacham corrupts, you don't make a public spectacle of it because that would be an insult to the Torah itself. Therefore, the Gemara says, even when it's talking about a Talmud Chacham who somehow messed up and therefore lands up in Gehenna, we still call him a Talmud Chacham. So at least you'll understand. It's a Talmud Chacham, but something went wrong. So it's a Talmud Chacham in Gehenna. You'll appreciate that we don't degrade the person, despise the person, but something happened to them and they belong in Gehenna. And we acknowledge that. Whereas on the other hand, simple people. Even when they are absolutely filled to the brim with mitzvahs. We can actually call them out and, and, and publicize their spiritual lack without insulting the mitzvahs. Because if I say that this person is a poishaya, I'm not saying that the mitzvahs have no value. All those mitzvahs are absolutely authentic. It just so happens that the nature of mitzvahs is they don't automatically transform the person to be durch und durch, completely uh, successfully in a space of holiness. And you see that the Gemara actually goes specifically to speak of them in a degrading way. The sinners of Israel, which is not a nice thing to say. Why do we do that? Because we know from various places in the Torah that actually to degrade a person is sometimes part of their uh, of their uh, repatriation of their teshuva. Famous story where Chizkiah's father Menashe was this uh, terrible idolater, and Chizkiah took his father's remains and schlepped them around the streets on ropes to 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 Dafka publicly embarrass his father's remains to assist his father's neshama on its journey. Now, all of that was to bring us back to our conversation about how we're splitting the Mishkan and obviously subsequently the Beis Hamikdash into two realities. There is the Mishkan for divine presence, and then there's the place where you keep the Torah, and that's supposed to represent our Mikdash. We're which has two areas Torah and Avoidah Hashem. So the fact that our sages pick up on the Pasuk that says and they tell us that Abish doesn't want just simply to reside in the base of Mikdash, but he wants to be within each of us. 
move on. So that illustrates So we've just looked at the fact that there is Torah and Mitzvahs, two completely different ways that we create a personal Mishkan, a Talmud Chochem, or even somebody who's Poisha Yisrael. So that must reflect back onto the Mishkan and the Beis Hamikdash that they also must have two primary areas of focus. What are the two primary areas? Very famously, there's a debate between two of the great of the great medieval scholars about what is the central purpose of the Mishkan and subsequent to the Beis Hamikdash. We already quoted the Ramban at the beginning of the He says that the primary concept of the Mishkan is to have a place where the divine presence would be felt, and that's primarily in the Kodesh Hakadoshim and specifically in the Oren. And the Rambam's view is the primary focus of the Beis Hamikdash, preceding that the Mishkan, is a place to be able to bring korbanos. Now, are they arguing? Not at all. They're giving us two angles and perspectives on what the whole Mishkan Beis Hamikdash reality is. Because the concept of Hashem's presence coming into the space has two parts to it. Aleph, one part of it is, one part of it is that this is a place you go there, you see godliness, you feel godliness, it touches you in a personal way. You feel that you are one with Hashem in that space. That's the one element. Beis, the second element of the Mishkan and Beis HaMikdash is that, that's not just about my experience of godliness. It has to impact the physical, materialistic world that we live in. And how do you do that? Bring physical things into the Avoida in the Mishkan and Beis HaMikdash and you elevate them. And this is actually pretty similar, obviously, to mitzvahs, which uh, mitzvahs always have to be performed with uh, physical items, right? You can't do uh, mitzvah with, with just spirituality. You need to have a physical item. So in the same way, the Beis HaMikdash had to have these very physical things called korbanis. And these are represented by the two elements of the base Hamikdash. Aleph Ha'ara, and the Aaron represents the first thing, bringing godliness and creating an awareness of Hashem and feeling absolutely one with Hashem. And base HaKarbonis V'Hamishkan Bichlal, the Karbonis and the rest of the structure, which is about bringing physical materials and incorporating them into the service of Hashem, like mitzvahs do. So Aleph Ba'aron Yinatayra Ha'isaylikus Begoloi. When you deal with the Aaron, which is supposed to represent Torah, which is the the uh, the process of creating an awareness of closeness to Hashem, that's where you see godliness. You look at the Aaron, the Aaron itself doesn't behave according to the laws of natural science. You looked at it and you could see that the space where the Aaron was is absolute godliness. Because only Hashem could accommodate absolute impossibilities. On the one in the Aaron has very precise measurements, so it's very finite. And on the other hand, it takes up no space, which means it's completely beyond finite. That represents absolute oneness with Hashem, where you're completely outside of the world of rules and of the finite world, and that's achieved through Torah. Then Beis in and then you have the Karbonis. And not just the Kabbalists, but the entire Mishkan, which is in Tilasud Gimel Tezvav Dorin bringing all various kinds of materials and turning them from just being physical elements to become Hashem's home.
That's what I'm shachas hashchina besachtoinim. That's where you bring the godliness down into the nitty gritty of this world. Which is very similar to how we take physical items, use them to do mitzvahs, and as such, we elevate elevate those items to have a mitzvah holy value. Now you're going to say yes, but it's not as if there's a void in the Mishkan. The Mishkan also was a place of miracles and a place of divine revelation. And so were the Korbanis. There were miracles that occurred. It doesn't matter. Even if you saw that the fire going up from the Mizbeach never moved in the wind or was never doused by rain, or you saw that it never flies, you didn't see the cow radiating Elokus. When you looked at the Oren, you saw it radiate Elokus. It doesn't fit into the laws of nature. At the same time that it's in nature, because it's measurable, you didn't see that in the Mishkan per se or in the Karbonas. Which is why the Midrashim we quoted at the beginning made a distinction between the Oren and the Mishkan. Even though, of course, the overall mission of the Mishkan and the Oren is a shared mission, bring godliness into the world. Because because the truth is that there are two nuanced realities within that broader goal and objective. Aleph, the first thing is achsanya le'atzmi. The first thing that the Ebishter wants is that it should be a place where I can be accommodated. Ebishter wants to come into the world. So how do you, you got to bring the world there. Bring the world, set it up in a particular way. And now Hashem says, okay, I'll be at home over here. I'll live in this space. And this kind of accommodation would be similar to what mitzvahs are able to achieve. That there's a connection. There's Eibushta in this world and they're connected together. That our physical world should become an accommodation of Hashem. Then there's a separate concept to accommodate Torah which means that's where there should be an awareness and experience of Godliness as the Aaron represents. Well, you don't just see that Hashem touches or connects with or influences the space but the space is absolutely one with Hashem. Where Hashem's presence and reality is so absolutely part and parcel of the Aaron that look at it and you'll see it defies all rules and all logic. Which is very similar to the concept of a Talmud Chochem where the Talmud Chochem himself becomes a fiery body. Now we've made this distinction between the effects of Torah learning and mitzvahs on the individual. i.e. the person who focuses primarily on learning Torah, the person who focuses primarily on doing mitzvahs. And we've said, we've also said that the same distinctions apply in the, in the greater physical base amigdash. There's an Aron representing Torah and there's the, the rest of the building and the Korbanas which represent mitzvahs. So the reason there are these two distinctions is because of the nature of what Torah is and the nature of what mitzvahs are and how they respectively represent connection to Hashem. We know that with regards to Torah we say Torah and one are absolute. Torah and Hashem are absolutely one thing. It's the same entity. Not like two things 
that are bound together. Elachod metzius achas, literally a single entity. Torah and Hashem is literally the same thing. Torah is chachmosoi yisbarech, and as the Altarebbe says in Tanya, huva chachmosoi echod, based on the Rambam, it's Hashem absolutely. Vilam mitzvahs, shein rotzen ha'elian, whereas mitzvahs, which express Hashem's will, they're mikro avrin demalka. They're considered like the limbs, kaviyochal of Hashem, 613 limbs. Which is similar to human limbs. Obviously, your limbs are completely um, uh, subservient to your neshama, and they have to behave as as the neshama would want them to. Nobody would suggest that your limb is one with your soul. There's no delay in the soul's instructions and the limb's response, but you would never say that your limbs are your soul. Mitzvahs are an instruction from an instructor to an instructee from Hashem to the Jewish people, which is quite distinct from Torah, whereas, uh, you know, Torah at the end of the day has value even before you learn it. The mitzvah has no value till you do it. So therefore, when you learn Torah, which is Hashem's infinite wisdom, which is absolutely one with Hashem, well, if you're learning something that is Hashem, naturally it's going to affect you that you'll become one with Hashem. But when a person follows Hashem's instructions by doing a mitzvah, where the whole intention of the mitzvah is the instruction to the person, obviously that causes the person to surrender their ego in the face of what Hashem wants. You put your interests aside, you do what Hashem wants. But you don't become one entity with the mitzvah that you have just performed. There's me, who did that mitzvah. That would explain very well how come this concept of Hashem dwelling within us. Even if we're just looking at the part which is to make the world into a place for Hashem to be accommodated and revealed. Now understand you need to have both. You have to have Torah and mitzvahs because each one has a different effect. What is Hashem's intention in wanting to have a home in the lowest realm? It means Hashem wants His essence completely accessible here in the lowest realm. In the lowest of the lowest conceivable reality. Now you need two things to make this work. Number one, Aleph, you need Hashem's essence. So there's got to be a mechanism to access Hashem's essence. Number two, the second thing is you need a mechanism that brings that essence into the reality of this world, meaning to say you need a mechanism that is engaged with the realities of this world. That is the difference, but essentially the partnership between Torah and Mitzvah. Torah, by definition, is absolutely one with Hashem because that is what Torah is. In That brings Hashem's essence into the space because I have a direct line to Hashem's essence. The Torah is one with Hashem. But that doesn't bring it down into the physical world yet because I'm learning Torah, which is fairly abstract because it's an intellectual pursuit. It's not touching physical things yet. Because even when Torah is speaking the language of things that you and I could relate to, physical examples of scenarios, it's still not an actual physical item. 
Whereas on the other hand, mitzvahs that are considered like the so-called limbs of Hashem. The way that mitzvahs play out in this world is completely reliant on physical parameters. That's the whole point of mitzvahs. To take lowly physical items. And to refine and elevate them by using them for mitzvahs. That's going to bring that essence that we connect with through Torah into the physical world. They work in tandem. Torah gives us access to Hashem's essence. Mitzvah brings that essence down into real life. And that will better explain the connection between Rabbi Eloz and Reish Lakish. Where we see that they speak both about Tamid Chachomim and Poish Yisrael, to the Sugya, which is what? Because remember, we asked, what's it got to do with this Gemara? It should be spoken about in Erevin, that's the main place we talk about Gehenim. And what's the connection to the Mizbech that was just discussed before in the Gemara? Now we can start to piece it all together. The message of these two, these two uh, statements is, you have to pay attention to the details. And then you'll come to recognize that every single Jew, whether they be those who are in the upper classes of the great scholars, or all the, all the way at the bottom of the barrel, the sinners, the Gemara just told us that the coating of the Mizbeach is not what you look at. You don't look at what meets the eye, but you look at what is the whole entity. The entity is a Mizbeach, therefore it cannot become impure. That's how you're supposed to look at a Jew. Yes, they might have a coating externally. You could, you could claim they're hypocritical or whatever the case is. They're doing this. It doesn't matter. The entity, who is this person really? This person is holy. That's the direct follow-on from what the Gemara just spoke about, how it is that the two Mizbachos could never become impure. Why not? Because you, you look, this is the Shita of Beisilal, as we learned in the previous Sikha, that you, you have a look and you analyze what's going on over here and you say, the gold on the outside is there to serve the Mizbech on the inside. So therefore, it's not the real them. The Mizbeach is the real them. The Mizbeach cannot become impure. And that's how a Jew is. The externalities, don't worry about that. It's, the, it's who the person is on the inside. That's what really counts. Now that we've identified that the Mishkan represents both sides of how we serve Hashem, both Torah learning and mitzvah observance, so therefore it's completely logical after the Gemara discusses how it looks in the actual Beis HaMikdash it discusses how it looks in the personal Beis HaMikdash that just in the stru- as in the structure so in the person you have two areas so in one person the Iker is the Torah in one person the Iker is the Mitzvahs and the coating of Averis on the outside cannot harm them because the Etzim this is somebody connected to Hashem 
Or if he's moving gam seder hadvarim and finally that also helps us to understand why the order in which we confront Rabbi Elazar and then Reish Lakish, which seems to be the wrong order, actually makes perfect sense. First, the Gemara talks about Tamid Chachamim. Only after that, about sinners. Even though the Gemara is only really talking about the, the Mizbeach, and that only comes in the second um, statement, Reish Lakish's statement about the sinners. Because the Gemara is telling us the reality is, under normal circumstances, this is how spiritual development works. First you learn, and the learn brings you to act. First you have to be a shtikal tamad chacham, and then that will help you to be able to be medei mitzvahs. And so it is in bringing God in us into whether it be our personal base amigdash or the broader base amigdash. The first and primary step of bringing a lakus into the world is through Torah. And then once we've introduced Hashem's essence into the space by learning Torah, then we ground that essence into our world by performing mitzvahs. And you have to have therefore both, although ideally that's the order that it goes. You learn and as you learn, you connect more with Hashem and then you translate that more into your world through the performance of mitzvahs. Please God, we should uh, be zeichet to make a bedira of zachtonim both personally and in this world with the coming of Mashiach and the third base of Magdash now.